thank you for coming on uh, afternoon when it's getting towards whatever you do at tea time. Um, my name's Mike White. Uh, I'm a, a journalist, retired. Um, it's my birthday today, I know, because Facebook wished me a happy birthday. <laughs> I didn't tell them. Um, uh, but we have here to discuss manufacturing uh, 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 the clash of civilizations, distinguished uh, panel, Min minus one member, uh, uh, Ezra uh, Ozzy-Jurek, if I've pronounced that right, who's a Turkish specialist, and we'd like to have heard from her. Wow. Um, she's got a sick child. Not seriously sick, but uh, uh, in hospital, and that takes priority, of course. Uh, right. Um, from the right, uh, Andrew Preston. Professor of History here at Cambridge. Uh, when he opens his mouth, you'll find he's a Canadian, and uh, therefore, I was thinking earlier, represents the only member country of the G7 whose government is not either actually controlled by or threatened by authoritarian nationalism. <laughs> well done, Mr. Trudeau. In the middle, Sarah Silvestri uh, is senior lecturer in religion and international politics at uh, City in North London, and they've all got a fantastic amount of qualifications. Um, Julian Hargreaves is a research associate at the Centre of Islamic Studies. Uh, he's just told me he lives at a place many of you know, Bulldog, halfway between London and Cambridge. His wife works in London. But the interesting bit you don't know is that... Can I do this? Please. You will keep it? Yeah. Bulldog is a corruption of Baghdad. Now, why would a medieval town be blah, blah? Because it was founded by the Knights Templar. There you go. This is a scholarly occasion. Right, Andrew is going to start explaining the context of uh, the clash of civilizations, which in my mind is associated with uh, Samuel Huntington and uh, uh, Bernard Lewis, although I can't help thinking uh, of uh, Mahatma Gandhi on his first visit to London, was asked what he thought of Western civilization and replied, anybody know this one? I think it would be a good idea. Um, and... Um, uh, probably looking west from ancient empires of Persia and other places, they must have the same thought occasionally looking at the White House, but we won't get on to <coughs> that. Won't get on to that. Andrew is going to provide us with context, the historical, particularly in the US, clash of civilization riff, which has been around a long time, one way or the other, with particular relationship with the new administration. Uh, Julian's going to talk about the UK context and how uh, this sort of stuff relates there and what we should, how we should properly engage with, uh, uh, with um, uh, the, the British Muslim uh, uh, community. Ezra was going to talk about Turkey, which is, you know, authoritarian nationalism in yet another form. There are so many. And uh, Sarah, who is going to come last, but that's not a gender thing, um, it's, um, is going to talk about, I had it all down here, it's on the other page, that's why I didn't read it how nationalists and extremist agendas are pushing the idea of cultural conflict. Well, we'll look forward to that too. Right, eight to ten minutes each. You fire, sit there if you prefer. I'll go up because I've, I've got a PowerPoint, so it'll be easier for me to see from here if I can call it up. There we go. Okay. Um... So what I'd like to do in my 10 minutes is just give a sort of very brief introductory overview of what the clash of civilizations means and where it came from, because it is an old idea, but how it's been 
conceived of in the modern era is not so old. It's about 25 to 30 years old. And we can identify who came up with the idea. Um, and the person I'm going to be talking most about this afternoon is Sam Huntington, who taught for a long time at Harvard University for about 50 years, from the mid-1950s um, until the early uh, 21st century. Uh, he died uh, a few years ago. Uh, he made his name originally in studying civil-military relations in the United States, so relations between the uh, uniformed military, the Pentagon, uh, and politicians, the policymakers who are actually sending the uh, soldiers off to fight. And in, his, in a really famous book called uh, The Soldier and the State, um, he argued that he didn't quite say that uh, politicians had to defer to the professional military, but he came close to doing that. And that's what that book is kind of known for, that politicians should just sort of sit back and, uh, and let the professional uh, uniformed people do their work once the decisions on, on, on whether to go to war uh, have been made. He then worked on uh, modernization theory, which was very popular in the 1950s and 60s and early 70s. And if you were studying political science or economics or history at a university in Britain or the United States in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, you definitely would have been not only studying modernization theory, because we still do that, um, but studying it as uh, the path uh, of the future, the way the world uh, was headed, that the world was modernizing and that there were certain steps that societies could take uh, in order to modernize, to go from uh, a feudal society or a pre-industrial society uh, right up into a, a full-blown consumer capitalist society. And one of Huntington's contemporaries, a guy named Walt Rostow, uh, who taught at MIT for a long time and then uh, joined the Kennedy and Johnson administrations and became a policymaker, actually came up with a, a, a scheme, uh, a five-step plan for uh, pre-industrial, pre-modern societies in Africa and Asia to modernize and, they, and industrialize. Uh, and then Rostow, as I said, joined the Kennedy administration, became a, policy, a policymaker on Vietnam, and you can imagine then what happened to the reputation of modernization theory. Uh, Huntington was a real critic of modernization theory, and he said, really, this is just um, a sort of Western view of the rest of the world uh, and is a kind of force-feeding of modernization to make the rest of the world modernize and become liberal, democratic, capitalist societies along Western but really American lines. And Huntington was very uh, critical of that. And I mention that because I think Huntington was critical of that, although he doesn't himself say so in his writings. Um, and I never met him. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't ask him. But I think he was critical of modernization theory because he doesn't have a universalistic, or he didn't have a universalistic view of the world. He had a very particularist view of the world, that countries were countries, ethnicities were ethnicities, people were people, and they might get along, they might trade with each other, and so on and so forth, but they were different, and those differences were uh, rather essential and very, very difficult to overcome, and they could be overcome only over long, very long periods of time. And that leads me to an idea that has brought us all here today on probably the nicest Saturday we've certainly had in a week and probably will, looking at the forecast, have for another week. So thanks for all uh, coming today. Um, but this is what's brought you here, this idea of a clash of civilizations. Uh, Huntington didn't come up with the term. Uh, a guy named Bernard Lewis, who taught at Princeton for a long time, was the one who first mentioned it in an article in The Atlantic, uh, an American magazine called The Atlantic Monthly. Uh, in an article in 1990 called The Roots of Muslim Rage. And I'm not going to mention that because I think Julian is going to, is going to um, discuss it. But I don't really need to discuss Lewis very much in terms of Huntington because Huntington, in this article, 
does cite Lewis for coming up with the phrase clash of civilizations, but very briefly. Um, and he, he didn't quite steal the idea, but he certainly appropriated it uh, and made it into something, um, made it into a whole system, a whole worldview that I think, I think I'll find out if I'm wrong when Julian speaks, but I think that Lewis was very sympathetic with uh, this vision that, that Huntington uh, came up with. And the whole notion of what the clash of civilizations is as an idea is really, I don't know if you can, if you can read it, it's probably not bright enough or, or, uh, or it might be a little fuzzy, um, but he says that world politics is entering a new phase. Um, it is my hypothesis that the fundamental source of conflict in this new world will not be primarily ideological or primarily economic. The great divisions among humankind and the dominating source of conflict will be cultural. Nation states will remain the most powerful actors in world affairs, but the principal conflicts of global politics will occur between nations and groups of different civilizations. The clash of civilizations will dominate global politics. Um, and then in the rest of the article that was published in uh, uh, a journal, a magazine in, in the United, published in New York called Foreign Affairs uh, in the summer uh, of 1993, the rest of the article fleshes this idea of a clash of civilizations out. And when he says in that first sentence of the second paragraph um, that the fundamental source of conflict in this new world will not be primarily ideological or primarily economic, he's, he's arguing um, uh, in favor, not in favor of a system, I'm going to come back to that in the sense that he liked the system, although he did, but in favor of the existence of a system, that he's identifying a new system that would replace the Cold War. Uh, the Cold War ended in 1989, 90, 91, uh, when the Soviet Union uh, essentially ceded the Cold War struggle and then collapsed in 1991. And in those years, 1990, 91, 92, 93, um, policymakers, academics, uh, public intellectuals, all sorts of people all, all around the world were trying to think of a new way to think of what would replace the Cold War. So what kind of world order will replace a conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States and their allies that was essentially ideological and economic, communism and capitalism, the dictatorship of the proletariat versus liberal democracy. And Huntington said, those days are over, and we're not going to have ideological or economic conflicts anymore. We will have cultural conflicts, and these, this type of conflict we, will, we can maybe think of as a clash of civilizations. Um, now, with this article, he hit... Uh, he won the lottery, the academic lottery. It's what every academic uh, dreams of doing. Um, it's writing an article, a 20-page article in a journal, and it kind of catches uh, fire. It catch captures the imagination, not just among fellow academics, but policymakers, uh, the ordinary reading public, newspapers. And he became a celebrity, not just an academic celebrity, but he became well-known, um, well beyond academia. And when I say he won the lottery, it's that then, uh, this sometimes happens, you write an article like that, and a publisher then contacts you. It's not, it hasn't happened to me, so I'm, I'm assuming this is what happened. And a publisher like Penguin, who published it in this country and in Canada, or Simon & Schuster, who I believe published it in the United States, big, big publishing houses then contact you and say, would you like to turn this idea into a book, this article idea? Um, we see this in movies all the time as well, where a, a two-minute sketch in a comedy show then becomes a two-hour movie. Um, and Huntington was then invited uh, along those lines to expand on his idea and to expand it into uh, book form. And this is the cover that was, I, I believe it was the original cover. It's certainly 
1996 cover, which is when the book was published. I believe this is the original UK edition. It was hard to tell, even with pretty thorough Google searching. It's not the US version, but the US cover is very similar. It's fairly bland. Um, it's got some images. Here you can see there are references to uh, religion, which was a very core element uh, of Huntington's argument. During the Cold War, theorists, especially modernization theorists, but all sorts of other people said that religion was irrelevant to the modern world because as the world modernizes, it will become more secular. That's secularization theory, uh, which was considered for a long time to be a kind of iron law of human development. As the world modernizes, it will also secularize. It, it can be no other way. And that's a very old idea that goes back to Marx. It goes back to, well, Darwin didn't make it, but Darwinism is a big part of it. It goes back to Max Weber, Sigmund Freud, uh, and others who said that religion was a declining force. And Huntington's, as a scholar, when I read Huntington, and I reread this book in preparation for today, um, it is, it's remarkable uh, how much attention he gives to religion at a, very, at a fairly early point among international relations scholars, because most of them, I work on religion and US foreign policy, and I put myself, so I should say most of us, most of us only brought religion back into world politics after 9-11, and Huntington was there uh, before, before us. Um, I don't have time to go into the full schema of the clash of civilizations. It's an, it's an idea that is, e that is easy to ridicule, um, and I think quite rightly, I think it, it is, it, there is a degree of perniciousness to uh, the clash of civilizations that we're going to talk about uh, today. But when I reread the book, I was actually struck at how many assumptions I had about, the clash of, about Huntington's clash of civilizations Weren't, weren't arguments that Huntington himself had made. They were sort of added on by his critics afterwards. There is a lot to criticize about the clash of civilizations. I don't want to back away from that. But it was more sophisticated than I was ready for. Um, anyway, this is a, a one map. You can find all sorts of them if you do a Google Images search for clash of civilizations map of the different civilizations that Huntington divided the world into. Um, and one of the key insights that he made, although I don't think he's quite correct in this, but one of the arguments to his version of the clash of civilizations is that it's the fault lines between civilizations, between the pale blue and the dark blue, between the purple and the pale blue, aquamarine, whatever that is, um, that that's where we're going to have uh, the wars of the future. And that's where, that's where clashes are going to happen. And clashes are especially going to be prevalent in that arc from North Africa over, um, over to Southeast Asia, where you have a multitude of civilizations all jockeying for position, and where you have states like India that are multi-civilizational. And that's why India is in diagonal stripes there. Um, just very briefly, Huntington was responding to the Cold War. He was responding in particular to an argument that I'm sure you've heard of uh, that was made at the end of the Cold War by a guy named Francis Fukuyama, who uh, still teaches at Stanford University in California. And Fukuyama argued that the, with the end of the Cold War and the triumph of the United States, uh, humanity, society, human society, had reached the end of history. Meaning that the great arguments over time and the great wars that were fought over this issue, uh, over the issue of, of, of governance and, and, and who, was to, who was to rule, who was to control society, those conflicts were now over. And that after the Cold War, every society would eventually become uh, uh, a, a liberal, democratic, capitalist society. Fukuyama wasn't the only one making that argument. That argument was, was very, very readily believed by the likes of Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. And Fukuyama became uh, 
a celebrity as well. Same thing, he wrote an article in a journal in 1989. It caught the imagination. A publisher asked him to publish it as a book, and it became an international bestseller that sold over a million copies. Um, interestingly, Fukuyama was Huntington's PhD student. Huntington supervised Fukuyama's uh, PhD thesis, not on the end of history, but on something else. And I'm sure when Fukuyama's article came out and book came out before Huntington had a chance to say something, I'm sure there was a bit of professional competitiveness. They're friendly, but a bit of friendly rivalry, spur <laughs> spurring Sam Huntington to get into the game with his own idea, but with his own idea that was very much opposed, fundamentally opposed to what Fukuyama was saying. If you're thinking that Fukuyama's argument was very similar to what I, how I just described modernization theory, that's because it is. It's, it's a sort of latter-day version of modernization theory. And Huntington just couldn't abide that sort of, that sort of argument. Um, Fukuyama seemed to hold the... His arguments seemed to hold the, um, uh, carry the day through the 1990s. Um, but when 9-11 occurred, that seemed to vindicate Huntington. It seemed to completely... It took... It took all the air out of Fukuyama's argument. And it, it really gave Huntington's idea of a clash of civilization new life. Because here it seemed, on September 11th, 2001, that we did have uh, very much a clash of civilizations. This is the 1996 cover that you've seen, that you've already seen. And this is the 2004 cover. And you'll notice the key difference here. So just various religions. And here we have a conflict not between the West and Islam, but between the United States and Islam. And there are all sorts of different uh, covers, post-9-11 covers for audiobooks and then hard copy books of this book, New Editions, that sort of play on this theme of a conflict between the West and Islam, but especially between the United States uh, and Islam. There is... Because of 9-11, because of this sort of thing, there's a difficulty separating the, the descriptive element of the clash of civilizations. So the element in which Huntington is just describing events and then analyzing them as an analyst. And the prescriptive element, the prescriptive element where he's saying this is what should happen. And that's where a lot of the criticism that Huntington comes in for comes from, and I think to some extent rightly so. Um, He's not always prescriptive, and he's in the book very careful to say, now, I'm not arguing for a clash of civilizations. I'm not saying this is what should happen. But then when you read the text, he comes awfully close sometimes to making that point, especially with his portrayal of Islam, which I think we're going to come to again with the other speakers, especially when he talks about the decline of the West. And it's very alarmist when you read his article in his book that the West has to rally and has to recover its strength because otherwise we're going to be swamped. That's what he was saying. We're going to be swamped by especially Islam, but also the Chinese and the Russians um, and the Latin Americans. You can see where I'm ending my... You can see where I'm going with this and how I'm going to end uh, my talk. In 2004, Huntington published another book that gave grist to the mill of his critics, Who Are We? The Challenges to America's National Identity, where he essentially said, America is changing because of immigration and it's not changing for the better. And the real... There aren't villains per se in this book, but the people who come in for the real danger in who are we are Mexicans and Latin Americans who don't understand liberalism. They don't understand democratic norms. They're too authoritarian. They're too Roman Catholic. He put in print. I mean, he didn't say that, but that's kind of me reading between the lines. And they're going to change the United States and not for the better. So he did start to move into outright prescriptive territory where he's criticizing multiculturalism. 
even if he isn't advocating for a war between civilizations. He very much was saying the West, and especially the United States, needs to get a grip and needs, to rec needs really to realize who we really are. And that's why he titled his book, Who Are We? This brings us, just in the last 30 seconds, um, to uh, a man who needs no introduction, Donald Trump. And the only thing I want to say, there's a lot we could say about Donald Trump and the clash of civilizations. I'm sure we will. But Trump's rhetoric on this, I think Islam hates us, making Mexico pay, building the wall and calling Mexicans rapists. China seriously concerned, but the, 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 the instance in which China was seriously concerned, or the, the particular comments were when he said that China is raping us. Rape is a common metaphor for Donald Trump. He uses it all the time. And Trump is unusual in a lot of ways, but he's, he's very different from George W. Bush and Barack Obama, in that for all their differences, both Bush and Obama, after 9-11, during the wars, during the, the so-called war on terror, both Bush and Obama said time and time and time again, I don't know how many times, you may believe them or not, but they said it over and over and over and over again, we're not waging war on Islam, we have no problem with uh, Muslims, Islam is a religion of peace, we just don't like these particular fundamentalists or regimes that are threatening the United States and, and, and our allies. And whether they're right or not, we could say a lot of bad things about Bush and Obama's foreign policy. They, that was the message that they tried to get across, and they did get it across over and over and over and over again. And even George W. Bush, not once, says, we have a problem with Islam. We have to go out and fight Islam, and that, that sort of thing. And that's the big difference. Trump has changed the rhetoric, where he is embracing the notion of a clash of civilizations and changing how the civilizations really discuss these norms together. And he sees himself now as a defender of Western civilization. And if there's a Trump doctrine, which is the article, which is the point of this New York Times article, which is a very good article, the Trump doctrine is let's save Western civilization from the, barbar the new barbarians, the Muslim hordes, the Chinese, Africans, Mexicans, other Latin Americans, and those sorts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Andrew had a bit of Ezra's time there. Now she's at the hospital. And Julian is going to be formidably disciplined. <laughs> formidably. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, there are lots of events going on in the Festival of Ideas, so thank you for choosing ours this afternoon. As mentioned in the introduction, uh, I study British Muslim communities. I've written journal articles and conference papers on anti-Muslim violence, on the discrimination of Muslim women in public life. I've written about the relations between British Muslim communities and the British state. And by way of an example, my most recent work uses statistics from the British Crime Survey to study police stop and search amongst young Muslim men. Over the course of the next few minutes, I will attempt to persuade you that within the context of studying British Muslim communities, the clash of civilizations debate has been given a level of prominence that it does not deserve. I will argue that the clash of civilizations theory, as offered by Huntington and Lewis, are far too simplistic to be used as tools to explain the causes and consequences of anti-Muslim prejudice and hatred. But I will also argue that scholars who attempt to provide a counter-narrative to the clash of civilizations theory do little to help the victims of anti-Muslim prejudice. 
In fact, I would go further and say that a fixation on the clash of civilizations debate has become something of an intellectual diversion among academics. An academic game with little of any practical use for British Muslim communities. Ladies and gentlemen, the purpose of this short talk is not to antagonise my fellow panel members or any experts or students of the Clash of Civilizations debate among you. I'm not suggesting that everyone's wrong. I'm not suggesting that nobody knows anything. Instead, I just hope to raise a few points of discussion around the nature and role of academic research in this area. I will put forward a case for the increased use of empirical data within debates around British Muslim communities and a greater consideration of local issues. In order to put my money where my mouth is, or my research where my mouth is, I wish to support my arguments with some examples from some recent fieldwork I conducted in Blackburn in Lancashire. Um, before, I, um, before I turn to the um, fieldwork, I want just to summarise by saying that the clash of civilizations debates have raised the temperature on discussions of topics related to British Muslim communities without necessarily illuminating the same topics. In short, it is my submission that debates around the clash of civilizations shed more heat than light. Before I turn to the fieldwork in Blackburn uh, and my arguments about the use of empirical data, I want just to say a few more words about the theory itself. Andrew did an excellent job of summarising most of it, but I thought I'd just return briefly to Bernard Lewis. Whilst, as Andrew correctly said, it is Huntington's development of the clash of civilizations theory that has attracted most attention, it was Bernard Lewis who used the term in the same journal three years earlier. Lewis argued, not very persuasively, I may add, that most Muslims resent the West and that most Muslims reject Western civilization and view its principles and values as innately evil. Westerners, claims Lewis, are viewed as the enemies of God. For Lewis, the struggle between the Muslim world and Europe represents an unbroken history reaching back 14 centuries. Lewis uses this history to explain his perception of the widespread anti-Americanism and anti-Westernism, which he claims are now shared across the Muslim world, with Muslims accusing the West of sexism, racism and imperialism. This is all summarised by Lewis as a situation in which fundamentalist leaders in the Muslim world now see Western civilization with its secularism and modernism as the greatest challenge to the way of life they wish for their people. In Lewis's own words, the perhaps irrational but surely historical reaction of an ancient rival against our Judeo-Christian heritage, our secular present and the worldwide expansion of both. Now, thinking around the clash of civilizations theory has informed much discussion around Islamophobia in the UK, and I'd like just to spend a minute giving you some examples. An edited work on Islamophobia, published in 2011 and available in many university libraries, features some big names in the study of Muslims and Islam. The edited work 
features 17 references to the clash of cultures or civilizations that either directly reference Huntington and Lewis's work or otherwise use the general theories to establish discussion. One of the most important reports on Islamophobia in the UK was published back in 1997 by the Runnymede Trust. I would argue it's perhaps the single most influential document in the study of Islamophobia in this country. It's had hundreds of citations in the last 10 years alone. And in the, in the Runnymede Trust report, it set out various definitions of Islamophobia, using Huntington's work to support assertions around the nature and extent of anti-Muslim and anti-Islamic prejudice. Just a final couple of examples. A debate recently in the New York Times and New Yorker uh, between uh, Roger Cohen and Robert Wright. Roger Cohen wrote an article entitled Islam and the West at War. Sounds like fairly standard Huntington stuff. In which he describes the abject failure of the Arab world. Robert Wright, writing in the New Yorker a short time later, uh, one of the first places that actually reviewed Huntington's book, Wright describes Cohen's conclusions as melodramatic. A few weeks ago, in the Huffington Post, a contributor, Abdullah Sharif, an author and a former diplomat, used a recent speech by Trump and the clash of civilizations theory to highlight new manifestations of Islamophobia. Sharif's counter-argument included a reminder to readers that both Muslims and non-Muslims contributed towards the development of science. What I hope to have demonstrated in these few examples is that the clash of civilizations theory is often front and centre in the most visible debates around Muslims and Islam, with scholars and commentators often spending a good deal of energy refuting and debunking the theory. Students of Islamophobia, of racism, of politics, of international relations and of intergroup relations will invariably encounter the clash of civilizations debate. Indeed, you can hardly avoid it. One could even argue that the only reason for the longevity and reach of the clash of civilizations debate is the force with which it's been opposed. To my mind, at least, it is the theory's opponents which have given the theory such power. I'd now like to turn to my fieldwork in Blackburn to show why neither side in the debate offers much to the study of British Muslim communities. I should uh, declare an interest here. I have uh, family who, uh, who settled in the Blackburn area and I was brought up just a few miles away in Lancaster. So the research setting and the people of Blackburn are both fairly familiar to me. Blackburn, as I've just mentioned, uh, a town in northwest England with a population of 113,000. It is a former mill town and an almost stereotypical example of post industrialisation. Employment there is higher than in other parts of the country. Health indicators suggest a place with lower well being than elsewhere. And life expectancy in Blackburn is lower than the national average. Blackburn has a reputation for being ethnically diverse and ethnically segregated. It has been called one of the most segregated places in Britain. And despite the town's overall diversity, there are areas there which are almost exclusively white and areas across town where 95% of residents are of South Asian heritage 
a very divided city ethnically. But the question for me, well, I'd like to invite you to consider this afternoon, is to what extent does the Clash of Civilizations debate help us to understand Blackburn? First of all, let us turn to the issue of segregation in the town. Given that the dominant religion among South Asian communities in Blackburn is Islam, does the segregation suggest some form of clash of cultures, some immutable and irreconcilable difference between Muslims and non-Muslims? I would argue it does not. Large-scale migration from South Asia to Blackburn began in the 1950s as people pursued opportunities in the town's textile industries. New communities with mosques and halal butchers and networks of family support attracted other South Asian newcomers through the 1960s and 1970s. Since then, bless you, since then, there is much debate around the present situation in Blackburn. The debate rages when you go up there. I went to a, a public event between Professor Ted Cantle, one of the great social scientists who has warned us about segregation in places like Blackburn, and he, was, he pitted his expertise against the former MP for the area, Jack Straw. So for some, uh, Ted Cantle, for example, the segregated nature of the town is caused by white flight, from areas that have seen increased numbers of South Asian households. Local residents and local authority staff, whom I interviewed, gave me accounts of suspicion, of mutual distrust, and even hostility between the two dominant social groups, white and South Asian. However, for others, segregation in Blackburn is no more than expressions of social and cultural preference. There are those who perceive workplaces schools, local youth projects and sports clubs to be the sites of good integration. Although there is a recognised problem of prejudice and hostility across various forms of local online media, reported cases of violent anti-Muslim hate crime are lower in Blackburn than in some nearby towns and cities. Clashes, whether of civilization, culture or any other types, appear to be relatively uncommon. There is also little evidence for a, wide, for a wholesale rejection of Western values among Blackburn's Muslim communities. Whatever your views on Blackburn, the issues facing residents there involve a complex set of factors about which the clash of civilizations theory says precisely nothing. Post-colonial migration, post-industrialization, demographic change, social and economic deprivation, and the lack of local authority resources. Where prejudice exists in Blackburn, we must consider an equally complex set of explanatory factors. These include shifting patterns of identity and diversity, the presence and visibility of cultural difference, the segregated nature of residential areas, and the suspicions aroused through separation. Where specifically anti-Muslim hatred exists in Blackburn, we must consider a range of current factors, the recent terrorist attacks in the UK, ongoing conflicts across the Middle East, local patterns of internet and social media use, and the effectiveness of the town's hate crime reporting and victim support services. These considerations, however, 
are denied to us if we fixate either on sweeping historical narratives concerning Islam and the West, or if we fixate on crafting careful counter-arguments to these problematic theories. Relations between Muslims and non-Muslims in the UK are contingent on a myriad of political, social and economic factors. And the solutions to issues around anti-Muslim prejudice and hostility require practical steps that engage with insights from local people and engage with attempts to foster meaningful encounter between diverse groups. Huntington and Lewis can't teach us much about this stuff, but I would argue that neither can their opponents. Thank you. Right, we've had sweeping narrative and we've had granularity, special reference to Blackburn. Now, uh, how are the rascals uh, abusing the possibilities here, extremist political movements? Over to Sarah. Hi. Thanks for having me here today. Uh, just to give some background, I'm an interdisciplinary social scientist. I'm located in the politics department. I work here at Cambridge and also in London. But I'm interested in uh, many other issues that are at the intersection with sociology, with religion, with political theology. And so, and I teach courses on religion and politics, but also on European Union politics. And more and more I realize that actually it is absolutely necessary to relate these two modules and the issues that are discussed because some dimensions of the relevance of religion and politics or the religious discourse in the mobilization of some uh, religious movements relates is a sort of response to the political system, to the ideas that are circulating or they are actually becoming bankrupt in the political system and in the way in which we understand law and order. So I thought that perhaps also because I'm the last speaker, it would make sense to focus on four concepts only. There are four key ideas or variables that are normally thrown into the discussion whenever we talk about the clash of civilizations and whenever we look at extremist groups, politically extremist groups who maybe are on the right wing of the political spectrum as well as Islamist political extremist groups, as well as fundamentalist groups, and how do they actually, I'm trying to try to understand or uh, see what kind of dynamics are ongoing when these groups mobilize and use the repertoire of the clash of civilizations. I'm not going to justify them at all. I'm a, my research is very much along the lines, the research that I do on Islam of of our speakers and on religion and politics. I don't think we are antagonizing each other at all. We are continuing the same conversation. But in a way, I'm trying to bring up these four dimensions because once we analyze them, we will see that maybe some of the logic or the discourse that is developed by the extremist groups is not too far away from us. There is a grain of, I don't want to say wisdom, but there is a grain of truth in the type of resistance to the current way in which we practice politics, the current way in which society is organized. So I'm trying to help people to uh, reflect and, and think by themselves. I'm not providing any answers. So the first idea that I wanted to uh, stop and reflect upon is the idea of culture. The idea of culture is not fixed. So in a way, uh, and the, the 
title of today's panel, Manufacturing and Clash of Civilizations, does in a way point the finger to the fact that the cultures and identities, although we like to think of them as if they were fixed and stable throughout history, they actually evolve with our biographical development in terms of what kind of contextual, historical transformations shape our experiences. And so, although groups and uh, uh, these extremist groups are trying to uh, point to the, the fact that particular identities could be the Christian European identity or the Islamic identities are being contaminated by the rest. In fact, it is a normal dimension, it is a normal feature of culture and of identities that they do evolve over time and with our experiences. So in a way, they are trying to fixate something in their mind that is not fixable in reality. The second point is the point of ideology. I think I'm a bit fed up with the way in which, in, in particular, the narrative, uh, international organizations and British government narrative against radical extremism and Islamic extremism has been developed because there is too much emphasis on the dimension of ideology. And while I don't discard, I don't disregard the value points that extremist groups, whether uh, you know, secular right-wing groups or left-wing groups or Islamic extremist groups bring up, I don't actually believe that the point of the problem is actually the, the ideas at the heart of the ideology, but it's more the kind of social dynamics in which these groups are inserted, and how they try to resist uh, some transformations that are uh, escaping our control, for instance, uh, the dimensions of the, the features of globalizations or the economic crisis or the failure of democratic systems or the fact that we have a beautiful set of human rights norms and procedures and laws which actually are not fit for purpose anymore. They don't answer, they don't provide the infrastructure for actually addressing the problems of religious diversity, of cultural diversity that we're facing today. So um, these extremist groups, in my mind, and are all operating according to a very similar um, procedure. <coughs> Basically, they are working, they are sort of mirroring each other in the way in which they think. They all think in a binary way, in an exclusivist way, that is, either you are part of our group, of our ideas, of our set of, of identity features, or you're out. And they don't allow for the possibility of moving in between, in various steps between one uh, set of ideas and another set of ideas. They don't, they don't allow for the gray zone, basically. And they are not therefore able to listen, to stop, and not only understand, but try just to listen to um, the opposite party or uh, what the other interlocutor wants to, to say. So in a way, some efforts to establish dialogue with these groups are sort of doomed for failure because the groups are not interested a priori. It's part of their, their essence that they are not interested in listening to each other. Um, another similarity is that they are all sort of trying to respond to these, to these dynamics of, uh, of globalization, of the 
liberal uh, thought that has dominated our economies and our political systems. So they are all, in a way, trying to, they are characterized by what I call the R's. They want to resist transformation, they want to reform society, they want to renew society on the basis of some past ideas, and they try to bring up maybe features of uh, the past history of a country or of a religious tradition in order to try to fixate some points of authority so that their discourse can be endorsed. But so the, the uh, reference to, say, the Christian roots of Europe or the Islamic uh, caliphate are only instrumental to being able to carry out uh, this effort of renewal of society and to be able to be uh, a legitimate voice in the political system. So um, they both use, they all use uh, these binary frameworks of, of thinking about themselves and, and, and the rest. And they, they use, so the repertoires of particular cultures, of particular regions of the world, of particular symbols, they use the symbols of particular religious traditions, not because the religious tradition is providing religious leaders or the theology of Christian traditions or of Islam is urging people to mobilize against the rest of the world, but more because being able to use these repertoires, uh, these symbolic and, and uh, discursive repertoires, enables these political actors to participate in a vocal way in the political system and also with innovative tools. Innovative, so to speak. But basically, the basic innovation here would be that actually throwing back the issue of religion or, religion or the issue of identity in a, in a political system or in, in, a, in a public sphere which was no longer used to considering the religious dimension or the role of uh, particular identities. So th that's what they are doing. So I'm, I'm very keen also to uh, describe extremist groups primarily as political actors not through their own ideologies. As I said, the, the prism of the ideology is just uh, the surface, is just an instrument in order to be able to uh, articulate a message. But the structure, the sort of the mental uh, subconscious structures of the message are very similar, and they are triggered somehow by very similar phenomena of society, the inability to cope with this transformation that is ongoing. So my final point is, um, so what do we do about this? I don't have an answer. But we need to interrogate the way in which politics is understood and is practiced. And I don't, and I, here I don't point the finger just to our governments or political, uh, political parties. We, think to think, uh, we need to think about politics with a big P and a small P as well. So politics, what's the purpose of politics and how does politics work? These extremist groups currently seem to try to resist, to counter the workings of a political system and of a way of understanding the political realm as if it was just the realm of persuasion. There is a big debate nowadays. Uh, there were important conferences in Cambridge and in other parts of the UK last year on are we in a, in a world of post-truth politics? So once upon a time, or if we study classics, we know that politics is about somehow the search of the common good on the basis of truth. But now, 
whenever we switch on the news or whenever we look at the activities of these extremist groups, we see that actually there is, everyone is pointing the finger to the fact that the political system is not working, that our politicians are not pursuing the common good, are pursuing selfish interests, and they're spinning, think also the debate around Brexit, they're spinning uh, information in order to suit their own agenda rather than giving the truth or uh, suitable information to the public in order to make up their mind and also in a way that is an implicit perhaps um, attempt on the part of the political elites not to allow the public to become political subjects in society. So that's the main problem. So in my view, although I, 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 dis, I personally don't agree with and I would never support these extremist groups of whatever flavor they are, I think there is a grain of truth or of something to recognize in what they're doing because they're trying to reclaim the role of the political subject in society and trying to resist a system that it is true has not served uh, uh, the purpose of the common good. Thank you very much. Right. Had everybody heard of Samuel P. Huntington before they entered the room this evening? You see, we're in Cambridge, aren't we? Anybody, anybody not heard of? Okay. Right. Um, the starting point. We'll do Bernard Lewis later on. Um, who wants to open the batting? Who will open the questions? Yes, man at the back there. Glasses. Somebody could find him a mic. Can you say who you are and you know, academically or whatever, you know, where you're coming from sort of thing? <laughs> okay, I was not prepared for that, but I'm a postdoc in the mathematics department here at Cambridge. So the question that I have, I was a little confused with this idea, is this is a new idea because class of civilizations has been going on since ancient times, I would say. Maybe we didn't call it civilizations back then. Maybe it was on the on a smaller scale where tribes were fighting each other because they didn't speak the same language or they didn't um, look like each other. So based on, so my question is on the time scale and also on, we, you, I saw a picture of the global scale, but it also happens on a very, very micro scale also, in a, not just between countries as the map suggested. So, so I'm just confused as to what is, what is new about this idea? Is it surprising that we are not wiser anymore in the 20th century? Right. What's new about Sam Huntington? Well, I would just say that Huntington would agree with you. He said it isn't a new idea, but that people had forgotten about this elemental <laughs> fact of, of international life, that it's civilizations. He said the civilizations are the highest, not as in the best, but the, the highest form of human organization, that you can have a, country, you can have a, a village or a city or a nation state, um, but at some point, you can't go any. You can always go higher until you reach a civilizational level. And he he said, absolutely, going back to the dawn of human history, to the emergence of civilizations, that is what happened. You had clashes of civilizations, and his point was that we had forgotten that during the Cold War. I'm not sure that he's necessarily correct, but he was trying to sort of take the. He was trying to poke the balloon of people like Fukuyama and others who were saying, look, we've kind of solved history. We've kind of cracked the, we, we've solved the riddle, um, and that in the future we won't be going to war with each other. Uh, the 1990s also gave rise to things like the democratic peace, so there's no democratic peace theory. The more democracies you had in the world, the less war there would be. Democracies were going to spread, especially if we help them spread, 
Therefore, it's going to be a more peaceful world, all that sort of thing. So Huntington would absolutely agree with you. Would it be possible to say that in the ancient world that there were three or four major world civilizations which coexisted, barely aware of each other's existence because mm. it was a different sort of world? You could. You could? Okay, I did. <laughs> um, Sarah, do you want to add anything on that? Yeah. Maybe that obviously Huntington is trying to speak to the political science audience and in particular to a sort of trying to interrogate uh, uh, the, the the group of rationalist approaches that have been trying to yeah, understand the world only through economic uh, features and, and the idea of progress. And so in a way, Huntington is correct because as I was saying, <laughs> partially, uh, because also these groups that we are currently uh, observing, uh, mobilizing, they are in fact saying that actually progress has not delivered all the good and wealth that we wanted and, and the human person is not just happy with being uh, with just having a job or, or yeah, having security, hard security. Well, I think my colleagues have covered most of it. I would just say that you have to place the argument within its context. And um, as Andrew quite rightly said, it came at the end of the Cold War. So for Huntington, previous conflicts had been around ideas, the Cold War being a great example all around political influence. He saw the wars in Europe in the 17th and 18th century to be examples of that. All around resources. So for him, it's a, a, sort of a new type of conflict. And that's really... But you're quite right. It was a sort of revival of a, an old idea. But it was fit for purpose because, in his mind, the Cold War was sort of uh, ending and he wanted to see kind of what was next. And that was... I suppose, in a way, um, Huntington is also rejecting American exceptionalism, which the <coughs> Fukuyama book exemplifies and the modernizers. Everybody's going to end up like us. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, I've got a woman here with, with also with specs on, and um, so anybody else? Should we do a twofer? Okay, that's it. Um, and there's a woman right at the back. Uh, let's do that. I once said bald bloke right at the back, and he said, thanks, Dad. My sight is not what it was. Um, okay, one, two, three. It's probably a little simplistic, but we don't have to manufacture a clash of civilizations because the, the fight for resources is going to become overwhelming because population growth, climate change, and really all it is is, is a kind of creation of groups of ownership so that you can try and obtain more than your fair share of resources. Simplistic, okay. but, you know, we don't need to manufacture it. It's there. You weren't at the last lecture in this room. Oh, uh, algorithms in abundance. Um, right, you, sir. Uh, it's, it's, com it's, it's coming. They need, they need to record it. Yeah, because they're recording it, yeah. Prosecution purpose. On the record. So I had heard of um, Samuel Hunt Huntington's Class of Civilizations book before this, but I hadn't heard of Who Are We, um, his book about... Uh, the American national identity, and it seems in a way um, he, he sort of foresees a, a clash of civilizations within the boundaries of the United States, and I'm sure you could see that, you know, or you could extrapolate that to a clash of civilizations um, after the migrant crisis happening in Europe or other parts of the Western world as well, um, which your talks um, got at as well. Um, so I was wondering what 
are, if you buy that argument, any three of you at all, um, if there are certain aspects of a, a national identity that have to be common um, to sort of bind a nation of people together, um, if so, what are those for countries in, the, in what we would call the West in the United States or in um, Western European countries? Um, and to what, to what extent do Samuel Huntington's ideas about these clash of civilizations sort of get into um, sort of dubious white supremacist or sort of social Darwinist um, tones? Uh, and so where, where, is the, where is the line of distinction between um, you know, embracing certain values um, of Western civilization while not lapsing into this sort of social Darwinist white supremacism? Yeah. Okay. And the third one, the young woman at the back. Yeah, that's you. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah. Excellent. So uh, my question is actually directed to, so I can't remember your name, from Blackburn? Julian. Julian, sorry. Um, it, it's surrounding integration. Okay. Asking how you would particularly facilitate integration or comfortableness between cultures that perhaps have clashes that rise from non-ideological points of view. I'm thinking of Blackburn, um, Burnley, Bradford. <coughs> Muslim cultures aren't comfortable integrating because of alcohol culture in the white Western side. And conversely, some maybe more insidious um, things such as the... Uh, streets and sexual harassment levels in Bradford, I'm thinking of particularly from typically Muslim or I should say British Pakistani men. Is this your part of the world? Um, I went to university in Bradford, okay. so I have many Muslim friends, but it's something they, they experience as well. So they're very much integrated as a community, but there are maybe non-ideological clashes there um, which still prove difficult within the community. I wonder if you could comment upon that. Okay, do that first. Mm. Non-ideological clashes, practicality, okay. harassment. Yeah, uh, it's a really good question, and it sort of fits squarely with you know the, the type of things I was talking about, which are that the problems in places like Blackburn and Bradford, and Burnley, <laughs> where there are problems. I mean, they're not entirely problematic places, right? There's quite a lot of harmony and peace and love going on too. But where problems are found, <coughs> I don't think there's a great um, sort of division between Muslim and non-Muslim or, or you know, sort of secular and Islam or something like that. I think that the problems in each of the places are contingent on local factors and contemporary issues. I, I, I don't accept that conflict between social groups is inevitable. I think it's contingent. So let me just take one of your examples. I think you were implying a reference to, to the 2001 disturbances in your list of... Bradford and Burnley and Oldham and Blackburn. And for people who aren't aware of this event, in 2001, there was a series of what some people call riots, but under English law, they weren't actually riots because the Riot Act wasn't read at any time. So, uh, but anyway, they were called social disturbances, and the media picked them up as um, conflicts against Asian and white male youths. And reported it as disaffected Muslim youths lashing out against their non-Muslim neighbours. And this was certainly one narrative that was available, but go up there and talk to people, and you'll hear about competition over the sale of drugs, and you'll hear about um, long-standing disputes around relationships between... Uh, girls and boys from the different communities. And so it doesn't really feel like it's much more than 
localised, contingent issues playing out on a very, very grand scale. I don't sense that it was a great clash <coughs> of civilizations, as it were. In terms of non-ideological um, uh, issues, this is a really sensitive topic, isn't it? I mean, we're going to start talking about the cases in Rotherham. We talk about sexual abuse cases, grooming cases, and... You know, it's, it's a really, really sensitive issue because it seems to be that the perpetrators come from a certain background. So how do we deal with that? Um, and it's not easy, and it requires a level of sensitivity that is generated and can only be generated with knowledge of local context. And that's why I very much shy away from these kind of, you know, grand ideological debates because you need to roll your sleeves up and get sort of into the sort of nitty-gritty of, of local issues. Um, I hope that's answered some of them. In terms of facilitating integration, there's a lot of work done by local authorities in places like Blackburn, and they spend millions of pounds on it, and you go and talk to local residents, and they sometimes have zero clue that it's going on. So you'll sit there in a council, and someone from the council will talk <coughs> very proudly about some great new initiative, and later on in the afternoon, you'll talk to local residents who know nothing about it. And for me, the best forms of integration and inclusion um, come as a byproduct of other forms of social encounter. So, people working together at a food bank. I'll give you a great example in Blackburn. They had an open mosque day, and no one attended. Right? So, the guy, the imam in the mosque, had a Sky subscription and wanted to show the Tyson Fury Klitschko fight. And the place was packed, full of all sorts of people white, black, Asian, male, female. <coughs> So these forms of inclusion, I think, come best as a byproduct and not as a sort of government initiative. But it makes it <coughs> more difficult. Mm, right. Do you suppose you have to get a, a, a different type of license from Sky in order to... Because there's a big tension issue there. Just a, yeah, just a point. Um, he might have deprived Rupert of a few bob there, and we can't have that. Now, we had two other questions. One was... Uh, these sort of conflicts are, I mean, it's a, it's a niche, but it's an important one, as merely a, a, a disguise or a, a, a displaced explanation for, for uh, resource wars. And the other one was the young man about, um, um, about uh, national identity and commonality, which somebody else can sort out. Who wants to go first? Uh, yeah, I think it, 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 in, indeed, I don't believe that any of these debates that we're having are about ideology. In fact, it's always about the underpinning uh, practical ways in which we live our lives and how we, we meet people. Um, and also, um, in terms of integration practices, I think whenever you have paternalistic, uh, either scaremongering, you know, counter-terrorism initiatives, or too paternalistic efforts on the part of the government to provide for communities, you're not going to get uh, a useful feedback. Whereas when you get people involved in practical activities for the community, uh, which may have nothing to do with religion or with the provision of particular cultural education, then you see people involved. And unfortunately, we also, uh, how the drama of the Grenfell Tower uh, demonstrated that people can work together and, and be productive and, and understand each other and foster relationships uh, in, in, in facing contingencies and, and ideologies don't, don't play a role there. Um, about the values uh, of Embracino community, I think you're pointing the finger to what, what kind of democracy or what kind of um, 
political systems do we want? To since uh, all basically all democratic elections of Western countries in, in the last year have produced either 50-50 outcomes or they have given uh, they've either brought to power right-wing groups or given them a considerable chunk of, of the seats in parliament. So except, except Canada. Yes, exactly. <laughs> as we as we heard. So uh, I think we we really need to to maybe make efforts to involve more people uh, becoming active citizens and re-own uh, again uh, the political field, not necessarily as resistant groups, but as participating in the system, understanding that unless you participate, you can never renew the system, and to always fight from outside the system, you're never going to change the system unless you cr everything crumbles and then you have a revolution which can be damaging. But that's the paradox of what's happened in Brexit and Trump, is that people who felt excluded from the system have been drawn into the system, finding their way to the polling booth for the first time. Uh, and those of us who believe in participatory democracy are horrified. No, by but it. that's what I'm saying. Uh, these groups, no, but these groups have been lured by the power of persuasion, not well, by the power of being able to, to deliver for them. So we have to wait another term. Well, the power of lies, perhaps, power but, uh, in, in, to, a, to, a, to, a large, to a large measure. <laughs> Um, but what happens next is the frightening bit. I think we, I think we need to wait and see. Um, there was an Italian, uh, um, very famous political commentator that was saying, when Italy had Berlusconi as prime minister, saying Berlusconi is like influenza, you have to wait for it to go through all the process, you can't get rid of it earlier. <laughs> and I, I think, unfortunately, uh, because our democracies are, have not <coughs> delivered, we have to allow for whoever is in power now not to deliver or to fail, then so that the political, the, the participants and the voters um, make up their mind, I think. But, but you mentioned Berlusconi. We all thought Berlusconi was a freak and a fluke, but he turns yeah, out to be now the, right? the forerunner. They're all doing it yeah, now. They're right. all Berlusconi. You know, I'm not, not, not the only case. No, I'm no. no longer. It's... Fifteen years ago, a wise friend of mine said, is Boris Johnson our Berlusconi? You want to think about that. Right, you wanted to come back in. I um, to sort of address two points. I think we should move beyond the nonsense of um, a narrative where people who voted for Brexit were lured into the voting booth. They had justifiable complaints. We can't generalise about these people. I know it's like the half of the people who voted. The second thing I want to say is that we talk about active citizenship but really, I feel we ought to be able to live in a country where people aren't necessarily that active, but don't feel excluded. And I mean by that, I've just come back to the field work in Blackburn. I tend to put my empirical uh, stuff forward at all times. But the, I, meet, I met um, minicab drivers, no interest in uh, local politics. And sort of why should they have? Why, why should we necessarily think that a solution to Muslim exclusion is to have more active democratic engagement? Why? Why can't this chap just drive around for the day and go to the mosque on his way home and go back to his family? I mean, it's what we all do necessarily. I feel like we've somehow racialized this notion of citizenship to the extent where we're asking of our minority communities things that the majority communities wouldn't perhaps engage with. But I wasn't saying uh, traditional politics. I have a colleague that teaches political economy, and uh, in her first lecture she says that a successful political system is one that manages to collect taxes. So to have a, a Muslim businessman happy to pay his taxes, in my view, would be a way of inclusion and of fostering political participation. Oh, well, I can agree with that. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a thought. Success, there's a definition I've never heard that before. Wow. And of course, from an Italian point of view, you can see it, 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 it is a challenge. Um, yeah. um, somebody said of the Greek tax problems that it was, it was the sort of remark you read in The Economist, the baleful legacy of the Ottoman Empire that nobody paid taxes. Uh, right. Um, Sorry, you would. Next. Um, oh, no, oh, that's okay. I, um, there were a couple of things that some of what I was going to say has been covered. Um, one thing I hadn't planned to say, and I hadn't thought about it until now, is just that I made a glib point about Canada, um, and it was made earlier as well, that Canada has right now avoided uh, a kind of alt-right or nationalist right party that's come, that's come close to capturing power or has gained a, a voice or a seat at the political table. In Canada, unlike the other G7, G8 countries, unlike a lot of other countries, um, didn't wasn't hit very hard by the Great Recession um, and came through it much better. It didn't have an economic crisis like other countries did. And the economic crisis in Canada came in the 1990s, where Canada went through a period of austerity that makes whatever you think about what the, the Cameron Osborne plan of austerity in Britain, the Canadian austerity program was much, much more draconian in the 1990s. And because of that, um, Canada weathered the, economic, the Great Recession fairly well. I think there might be something to that link between economic crisis and, and other types of political conflict. The, the, a lot of, I'm not, I, I, I've made so many notes that I would go on forever if I answered all the, question, the three questions um, in great detail. The things I just wanted to highlight were one, one person, because you, Phil, asked, um, whether we believe in Huntington's theory or whether it has much, uh, whether it holds much water. I think the thing that Huntington got right, to me, indisputably right, is that he, and Sarah touched on this earlier, that um, he sort of demolished this idea of human beings as rational actors and that all that mattered to them were strict rational choice calculations of their economic benefit that you know, people like Fukuyama and others were seeing people uh, pretty much strictly as consumers and that they would always be motivated by their own self-interest, self-interest being defined by what was, what was good in a material sense. And Huntington's thesis, um, at its root, has uh, places culture and religion and community and things like that uh, at, at, at the very base of people's uh, existence and their identity, that what matters to people as much as... <coughs> Uh, consumerism or economic rational choice calculation is who they are. Um, now, what Huntington then makes with that argument, what he does with that argument, we can argue over and we can disagree with, and I do disagree with m m much, if not most, of what Huntington says and what he makes of his argument. But I think there's something to that, that, you know, the title of Fukuyama's book was The End of History and The Last Man. And if you read Fukuyama, you get to the end and you think The Last Man shops at the Gap and eats at McDonald's and watches American <laughs> movies and TV and sir and goes you know surfs the net and looks at american websites and that sort of thing maybe some british or maybe some other european ones and that's that's just not that's just not who people are so i think huntington was absolutely right in in sort of shining uh, shining a light on that now what you what you do with huntington you could either see it as a warning this is the future this dystopian future of a clash of civilizations and mobilize against it and that's kind of what bush and obama and other people were doing in the era after 911 and i have a I, I think george w bush is going to go down in history Already, he should go down in history as the, having the worst foreign policy in American history and one of the worst presidents. But he did make, he, his biggest message after 9-11 was, we are not at war with Islam. And he said it over and over and over and over and over um, and over again. So you can take it as a kind of warning. 
Or you can take it as a call to arms, which Huntington kind of does. Who are we? We have to stick with our kith and kin, and we have to defend who we are. And I'm fearing that as we go on, the, the more, to go back to the first comment question, the more we do have events that seem to fit a clash of civilizations paradigm, that gives more and more evidence to a supposed clash of civilizations, which I don't, I think might explain something sometimes, but as a sort of all-encompassing theory, I don't think it actually works. Yeah. Both the Brexit and the Trump votes had a significant component of non-material, non-economic motivation. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. they're, they're not. No. Well, right, question in the corner, that's one. Um, get the microphone. Um, there you are. And then the one with the fur, if I can... Not really, not a real fur. Um, and there might be. And there's a, what I hope is a bloke right at the back who's got the mic as well. Uh, good, e good afternoon. Oh, oh, no, no, the, 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 you were first. No, carry on. He was being blokish. Take no notice. You go first. Uh, so I had a question. Uh, so this whole call to arms, I'm a bit confused about it because I saw the map that you put up. And it's kind of like a blanket statement, like Islamic civilization. But I feel like a lot of those countries have like very big Christian uh, mm -hmm. minorities. And like even if you look at India, it's like almost 170 million Muslims, but Saudi Arabia only has 30 million. Mm. So even if you were to do this call to arms, which I'm obviously very much against, what is he thinking? Like, how is he thinking that? What is he thinking when he says call to arms? Okay, not monolithic. Right, the, um, you were there. Have you got the mic? I didn't. The... She can. No, we need the mic, need the mic. To, to record you for nefarious purposes. Yet to be devised. Um, so taking up this idea of um, identity and commonality, it strikes me that something that... Um, Western civilization and Islamic civilization have both got in common is that, that they are both very much patriarchies. Um, and it seems like this is something they have in common, but it's also something they express in different ways. So, um, Western patriarchy sort of is concerned with exploiting and objectifying women, and Islamic patriarchy is concerned with controlling and restricting women. So, they both come together in this idea of, of ownership, um, and then that might, might manifest as these. Um, People from these cultures come across with this idea of like, oh, coming over here and taking our women and this kind of, this kind of way of clashing. So I suppose what I'm asking is, can empowering women um, have a role in easing this clash of civilization? Okay, interesting. Right, the young man at the back. Uh, from the sense of manufacturing a class of, uh, clash of civilizations, uh, how useful do you think the idea of, I think we're told that we have to be tolerant of difference. Uh, is that a useful thing, way to think about the idea? Okay, that's nice and simple, tolerance. Um, right, uh, monoliths over there, religious monoliths, patriarchy and emancipation of women, and tolerance, who wants to go first? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think the I think Sarah does. No. Okay. All right. <clears throat> no, I, okay. So, I'm involved in a project at the Wolf Institute, which is an attempt to map patterns of intolerance and inclusion around England and Wales. And we rejected the idea of having anything to do with tolerance as a concept, because we found it to be 
a bit negative in a way. I mean, you can tolerate someone and kind of ignore them or consign them to some sort of periphery. Whereas intolerance tends to be, at least in our minds at work, tends to be more of an active kind of process. So the idea about fostering tolerance is certainly to me and my colleagues not that interesting a concept, or at least less interesting than an attempt to foster inclusion, which for us would be an active attempt to bring groups together in a sort of meaningful encounter. So without wanting to dismiss your question, I think at the heart of it is really a really problematic concept of, of tolerance that I find to be sort of negative or have negative connotations. Well, indifference, in a sense. Yeah, indifference, yeah. yeah. What would be some substitute? In inclusion. Inclusion. Inclusion for us. Encounter. Pluralism. Well, pluralism to a, to a sense, yeah. but, I mean, but I mean, somewhere like Blackburn, to come back to my fieldwork, and it's not, I mean, it's, you wouldn't really call it um, plural in a sense. It's sort of right. bicultural, right. you know, so pluralism doesn't really work there. It's just about whatever the situation you find, are you able to increase the amount of inclusion, increase the numbers of meaningful encounter? Mm. But your suggestion, your implication, if I understood you, was that it does, that, that uh, separa separate, separate but equal, to use an old American yeah, phrase, yeah. long discredited by the Supreme Court. Uh, does it work? Are they separate? This is a whole other debate. I mean, you could argue that, like I said in my, in my paper, you could argue that they live apart, therefore it's a problem, or you could argue that they live apart but work and play together so it's not a problem and you go there and the different people will argue different sides of that so I can't really settle that argument I mean, it's the people of yep. Blackburn settle it ultimately okay um, so on the on the question of a call to arms um, he I mean he doesn't use that phrase that's my phrase um, but it's me attributing him. I'm, I'm not making a call to arms. But he's, uh, that's how I read Huntington. Uh, not so much in the article. I, I didn't mention that the article that I had up had a question mark, the Clash of Civilizations query. He ends up saying, yes, there will be. But he qualifies it quite heavily. And then in the book, there's no, there's no qualification. Um, and there will be a clash. Of, there, are, there will be clashes of civilizations. The most prominent one is, will be between... Islam and the West. Uh, and he doesn't include um, Latin America in the West. He says you could maybe include Latin America in the West, but really they're too backwards to be included um, in the West. Again, he doesn't use the word backwards. but um, So I agree with you. I find the, the notion of a call to arms also problematic and troubling. That's what I find the most troubling aspect of it. I think that's what most people who find Huntington's thesis find most troubling uh, um, uh, about it. He also would agree with you that he would say um, there are clashes of civilizations within states. Mm -hmm. And in his book, actually, he says, uh, a book published in 1996, one of his case studies is Ukraine. And he says Ukraine is going to split in half between an Orthodox East and a Western, pro-Western Europe, Western half of Ukraine, and there's probably going to be a civil war in Ukraine. And he says a lot of, not just the, the conflicts of the future will be, which one's the, is there a, a pointer? No, there isn't. Okay, I just turned it off. Um, uh, that not only will, no, there isn't. Okay, not only will there be where the fault lines are between the colors. Not only is that where the wars of the future will happen, but there will be civil wars in countries that straddle the fault lines, or maybe countries unusually. I can't think of any examples offhand, but countries that 
are not on the fault line, but for some historical reason or another have a mixture of civilizations within them. But he said so most... Myanmar would be an example, wouldn't it? Yeah, possibly between, yeah. Um, uh, I guess what he would, between Buddhist and, 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 and Muslim, yeah. Also, if I can add... Of course. So, uh, what is interesting is that he puts the finger to the bloody fault lines yeah. where Islam is relevant or any other religious religion becomes relevant for a future... Uh, uh, conflict. And in my view, it doesn't say this, but we could also think that in terms that in the fault lines along the borders, there is a lot of similarity in cultures. Mm. If you think of ethnically or what do Ukrainians eat, <laughs> it's the same, whether it's a Christian Catholic, Orto a Catholic or mm. Christian Orthodox. So the only way in which you can politically sort of mobilize and and make a, lo a logical differentiation is by identifying yourself as a Catholic or as an Orthodox. Mm. Yeah. Even though maybe the, 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 the differentiation hasn't started as a political instrument by the, the church, it wasn't started by the churches. Mm. And likewise, if you look at the strong confidence <coughs> existing now in, in, in the Middle East, uh, you know, the Christians of Iraq and the Muslims of Iraq have a lot of cultural similarities, mm. they live in the same region. So they have or the same, the same ethnicity. They're, they're, well, yeah, the ethnicity, yeah. they, they could, some argue that it's different. Well, some, but sometimes they're the yeah. same. Yeah. But yeah. they have a lot of similarities. And so the only way in which they can possibly separate is to identify religiously. Mm. And even, you know, Muslim and Jews in Israel and Palestine, <coughs> again, have the same territory. They have similar uh, religious rules about what kind of food. They don't eat the same food, basically. So there is, um, I think religion then becomes the, the way to identify. That's what broke up Bosnia for ex-Yugoslavia, wasn't mm -hmm. it? We've forgotten the question on... I am women. Empowerment I of women, which I'm all... I, I, I don't think Huntington, I don't recall that he make, that he discusses it much. I don't think it's much in the class of civilizations, but, yeah, the, the, the gist behind your question, I completely agree with it. The more we empower women, the more... Uh, I agree, but disagree at Go the same it. time. So uh, I have adopted feminist... You don't want to empower women. I have adopted feminist approaches in my research, and I, I, I'm all in favor of being part of, you know, Muslim networks, global Muslim networks empowering women. I was a key speaker there. But, unfortunately, if you look at the business sector, what many statistics show us is that actually the glass ceiling has not been mm. broken, mm. and uh, the successful women in the business sector, even in university, if I can say so, are those that don't behave as women, or who are expected to forget that they have a family, or, you know, how on earth are you asking them to go mm. home earlier, or something, your, your child is sick, or is it sick? Oh, oh. We have an empty chair. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so the, the, I think, um, it's not just empowering women, it's um, changing the mindset of sure. uh, the, the, the surrounding environment. Absolutely. Also, um, the clash of civilizations is not, um, has not been sort of even, it's, I don't think that um, Huntington goes in detail to say who, who are actually the actors of the clash of civilization. So the clash of civilization narrative is about the fact that there is a clash. But no one stops and wonders who are the actors, who are the propagators of the clash. And so there is a very interesting scholar uh, in Oxford, uh, Monica Toft, who has actually done some quantitative studies. Mm. And she's come up with a very nice concept of the fact that you need to have political entrepreneurs 
who use the religious symbols mm. in order to allegedly wage a war in the name of religion. And, and normally the dynamics of the work in those conflicts that end up being identified as religious conflicts, and she's actually counted several, and she's come up with the fact that actually most of the conflicts recently have been involving Islam. But then she's just trying to dig further and see who are actually the, the actors promoting the, the, the fight. And she's realized that actually there is a bidding process. So in a way the religious um, community and, and the religious scholars are sort of by, um, left on, on the side, and it's the political entrepreneurs who deploy the religious narrative, mm. and they end up with this bid, bidding each other. The more you really use your religious uh, instruments, I will come up with my own tools and my own narrative, and, and the high, so you escalate the conflict in that way. I feel a bit like the sort of plumber of the session, but just to bring things back to sort of kind of practical issues. There are loads and loads of examples where empowered women are actually um, solving some of the issues of social division. Allow me to give you some examples. In Northern Ireland you have uh, various mothers groups um, mixing Catholic and Protestant mothers who collectively aim to dissuade young men from joining paramilitary organisations. In many towns and cities that I've visited around England, especially in the north of England, there are things as simple as um, <coughs> things as simple as mother and toddler groups, where you have Muslim and non-Muslim um, mothers and children together. Um, in uh, in Blackburn, there's a very good um, Muslim all-female school, which, uh, as I say it, probably sounds like the sort of opposite of integration and cohesion. But the girls there are almost instructed to go out and do various. Uh, projects and activities which bridge the sort of divide between the white and South Asian communities in Blackburn. And the girls themselves, I think, are actually battling a lot of social conservatism they see at home. So through education, I mean, they have sort of glittering Ofsted reports and great GCSE results. You know, they, these girls are getting sort of 12A stars and going to Russell Group and Oxbridge Universities. So they're battling against social conservatism at home and themselves becoming perhaps more empowered than their, their mothers and grandmothers were. So I absolutely see it as a, as a solution. And it's one which the government seem particularly keen to avoid because it's messy and it's difficult. And a lot of ethnic minority communities suffer by having unelected male representatives who act as gatekeepers. And the gatekeepers... Keep the women out, too. Well, the gatekeepers police yeah, the... Birmingham, there was a yeah, campaign yeah, against... Yeah, they, they, they police the debates. They police the debates, and they, they police the allocation of resources, and they police outcomes, and they're, and they're useless. So it's going, to be, it's going to be women who will solve this problem. There's also well, the problem of successful and well-educated Muslim women who are too educated and they can't find a man to marry. And I am uh, finishing a book on Muslim women, that's a major issue. They're too educated and too, with too high expectations. <laughs> and, and also I've been dealing uh, with personal issues of um, Muslim women who well, well, have been um, um, disowned by the family because uh, they've gone too far. So they're actually, there's also a dangerous route. This they, empowerment can also lead to isolation. They won't settle for trophy husbands. The, huh? Settle for trophy husbands, good-looking football players who don't know much. Well, then, yeah, you're left with your money and in a, escaping your home. It's a, a TV series, Bankers' Husbands. <laughs> right, we end on a very positive note there.
The one thing he has mentioned about Blackburn, that the author of the Equal Pay Act and many other things, MP for Blackburn for many years, was the great Barbara Castle. She didn't put up with any shit. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> thank you all for coming. Five o'clock. You've all been very good. Uh, thank, thank you to our, our panel, Sarah and William. <coughs>